Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. Uh, this time we're sitting down with Matt Zeller, Executive Director of No One Left Behind. Matt's organization helps guys like Sarab, uh, interpreter that we had a few episodes back. Uh, guys like him and his family wouldn't, they'd still be sitting in Afghanistan or Iraq waiting uh, on their visas if it wasn't for organizations like No One Left Behind working to get them over here. You know, a lot of headlines in the news lately about immigrants and refugees coming from predominantly Muslim countries, Iraq being one of those countries. Several of those individuals that are trying to make their way over the United States are former Army and Navy, Air Force, Marine interpreters that work for the, the military, and they've been turned around just like everybody else has. Um, you know, we treat them as our own, and this organization is working tirelessly to make sure those guys aren't forgotten and they have a chance to, to make it over here. This is going to be a long, in-depth conversation, so it's going to be a two-part episode. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate giving me the opportunity to come on the show. All right. So what motivated you to join the Army? I'm from upstate New York, probably from uh, Rochester, New York. And uh, my family has actually been in the United States of America since the 1760s. So when 9-11 happened, I, as a proud New Yorker, felt like my grandfather did the day after Pearl Harbor, which that was my turn to serve, just as my ancestors had done before me. I enlisted to the first person I saw in uniform. After 9-11, it was an army recruiter in a mall in uh, upstate New York where I was a sophomore in college. And the next thing I knew, I was in basic training that summer at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, upon completion of basic training, the army afforded me the opportunity to go into the ROTC program. They had seen some leadership and, and they wanted me to become a commissioned officer. So my plans of dropping out of college and going in active duty were scrapped and I ended up going to the ROTC program and Went back to school as one of three people on campus in uniform. The other two were a Marine Corps reservist and an Army National Guards Guardsman. I uh, commissioned the end of my senior year into the Army National Guard because I ended up winning the scholarship that afforded me to go learn Arabic and then go on to grad school. So upon graduation from grad school in 2006, I moved uh, from upstate New York down to Washington, D.C. and started working as an officer of the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, on my second day on, on the job, I got back home and uh, in my mailbox were deployment orders for Afghanistan for my Army Reserve unit back in New York. And uh, at that point, I had been drilling with them as a regular member of the unit since I had first enlisted. What was your MOS? I was, when I enlisted, I was 11 Hotel, which was uh, a tow missile operator off the back of a Humvee. They don't do that anymore. Right. They got rid of it right after I went through training. So I, uh, when I graduated, so what ended up happening was as I... Uh, I went and became a cadet, and as a cadet, they kind of just have you like take on like a junior leadership role within the unit, and I wanted to do intel. So I, I sort of shadowed the intel the section until I uh, commissioned, and then I commissioned as an intelligence officer, th so 35 Delta, but I got out of civil affairs. Um, that was my last duty assignment with civil affairs. It's 2008, and uh, that January, uh, my unit leaves for training at Fort Riley, Kansas, and uh, I was... We were going over the, the brigade that I was attached to was made up of National Guardsmen from the Northeast, uh, mostly New Yorkers, but some New Englanders as well. So that year when my Giants played their Patriots in the Super Bowl, they actually had to have MPs <laughs> separating the two sides as we watched the game together. But uh, we trained up out of Fort Riley, Kansas. The mission we were preparing to do was to be what are called embedded combat advisors. These are the people who would go out and live with the Afghan army and police or the Iraqi army and police, actually live in their bases, on their compounds, go out on their missions and 
the idea is that we'd one day be able to hopefully train them to be competent enough that we could leave and they could take over the defense of their country and finish up fighting, you know, the very enemies that we had asked them to help us fight since the beginning of each war. That was at least what we were supposed to accomplish in theory. Uh, in reality, we were in no way prepared for what, what we ended up encountering. So where, where did you deploy to? So uh, I went to Ghazni, Afghanistan, which is um, from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. It's about the same journey time, right? Is Ghazni north or south? South. South. But it's about the same distance as it would take normally from Philly to Pittsburgh, which is what, about three and a half hours? Yeah, ballpark. About three and a half hours. Well, in Afghanistan, that drive would take anywhere on a good day from six to seven hours. And on a bad day, it could take multiple days. And what I mean by that is, is you could get, we want, it once took us three days to go that entire distance because of the amount of ambushes we ran into. And it's not like you just, you know, you go through an ambush and you stop fighting, you keep driving on. There's a lot you have to do afterwards. You have to do a casualty assessment. You know, you might have injured or wounded yourself that you have to deal with. There might be injured or wounded civilians. You might have bad guys that you need to detain and, and send up to hire for, you know, analysis and intelligence collection. Um, there might be additional booby traps left down the road that you've got to clear because you can't just let civilians drive through and end up inadvertently tripping a roadside bomb meant for one of us. Like, that's what the good guys do. Bad guys just drive on, right? So um, this is a long way of saying that even though we should have been, we were that close to the capital, honestly, what should have only been a three-hour drive, that's how dangerous Afghanistan was in 2008. In 2008, that was the year that Afghanistan became so violent that it became more likely to be injured in Iraq, in Afghanistan than in Iraq. You were more likely to die in Afghanistan than Iraq. Afghanistan was the more violent of the two wars in 2008. And yet in Iraq at that point, we had 160,000 troops. In Afghanistan, we only had 30,000. So when we got to Afghanistan, I'll never forget, I landed in country on April 13th, 2008. The next day, April 14th, we went to this big old dining hall, this chow hall on this base called Camp Phoenix, which was an old Soviet military base in, in Kabul. And uh, the commanding general of our entire task force was this two-star named Major General Robert Cohn. He ended up retiring as a four-star, as the head of TRADOC. A lot of your listeners will probably know him as, he was the guy who was the garrison commander at Fort Hood when uh, Nadal Hassan carried out his terrorist attack there and, right. and you know killed many of our brothers and sisters. Um, but at the time, he was a two-star who was in charge of this, this training mission that was called C-STICA, Combined Security Training Command Afghanistan. And uh, he got up in front of this chow hall, and I'll never forget, he said, by a show of hands, gentlemen, apologies to your female listeners, but at the time, we were not enlightened enough to have uh, integrated the sexes properly in our military. And as a result, there were no women in this task force, which is all men which was a major detriment because we, it basically meant we couldn't talk to 50. Could talk to a single Afghan it female. It's not just a 50% of the Afghan population. It's more like 80% of the Afghan population. A lot of people don't realize just how efficient of a job the Soviets did on killing off the male population of Afghanistan. Right. The women there outnumber the men in some cases eight to one and are often, you know, they're already in charge culturally of everything that goes on in the home. Um, so, and they're usually the best source of information because they probably know everything that's going on in the village around them. But yet we couldn't interact or engage with them in any way because as a male, it was just, it was not allowed in their culture because we weren't related to them in any way. And there's the whole religious factor of us not being Muslims. We couldn't address them. Um, but if we had a, a, you know, a tiger team with us, the all female teams, that was the best thing ever. Cause then we could finally start engaging these people and sometimes get the real ground level truth. But I digress. 
he stood up in front of the audience and he said, gentlemen, by a show of hands, how many have been to Iraq? And half the hands in the room went up. And he said, I want you to understand something right now. He said, you have to understand in Iraq, we do everything we must to win. Here, we're doing everything we can. So for those of you who are used to the average time of flight of a medevac being eight to 10 minutes in Iraq, in Afghanistan, it's one to two hours. The moment he said that, it was like the oxygen went out of the room. Everyone, it, you could hear a pin drop. Because that was, he went on to say, you know, the average time of flight for CAS in, in Iraq at that point was something like 12 to 14 minutes, and in Afghanistan, it was one to two hours. And then the one that just, I think, kind of like was like the, the absolute gut punch was when he said, the average time of a QRF in, in, in Iraq at that point was 12 to 20 minutes ground. And in, in Afghanistan, it was four to six hours, which was just laughable at that point, right? That's a casualty collection team. There's nothing quick about four to six hours. That's all reaction force. But you can, no, no way can you describe that as quick. That's, you know, but that, that medevac, man, one to two hours is a flying hearse. It's insane. We had this E7 with this uh, Sergeant Lamb. He was a fister. And our first tour, we went to Afghanistan. Second tour, we were going to go to Iraq, but we ended up going to Afghanistan. But he was telling, like, new guys, like, look, the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan is, in Afghanistan, you shoot your weapon every single day. Iraq, you may fire 50 rounds in a year. Afghanistan, that's where the big boys play. Like, these guys are made to engage. Like, that's what they do. He so said, never, I never did Iraq. I, Afghanistan was my only deployment. And uh, it... The, the general could not have been more spot on. I, I, so my right seat, left seat ride, which is you're supposed to spend optimally, I think by doctrine, six to eight weeks with your replacement. I spent six minutes. The convoy that came to pick me up, to take me to Ghazni, was dropping off most of the contingent of the people we were replacing. And the lieutenant that I replaced, literally as he got out of the back of the MRAP, kissed the ground, said, thank God I made it. This fucking place, I'm sorry, can I curse? Yeah, oh yeah. He said, this fucking place is awful. I never want to see this goddamn country as long as I live again. Good luck, man. I hope you make it. You're all going to home home with at least a purple heart. We did. And he walked away. And he was, there was no hyperbole about anything he was saying. He wasn't trying to scare me straight. He was giving me the quickest on God's truth ground brief he could give before he pop smoke and got the hell out of the AO, right? Because he was done. And um, we got into the back of this convoy and uh, spent the next six hours driving down. By the time we got to our base, it was, it was so dark, you couldn't see anything because it was a blackout fob. And uh, I remember they put us up in uh, what would later, we would later learn would be the, the, the ubiquitous sort of every room. It was the MWR, the talk, you know, you know, you name it. It was just sort of the, the one room that they sort of, no one else had bunks in. It was a four B hut fop, you know, two sleeping quarters, a, a, a defac, and uh, this like catch all room, and then a, a couple of shitters, and that was it. And um, we built it into something. You know, we went from housing 20 people total to having the capacity to house 300 because we were told to expect an entire company of Polish infantry that never showed up. But we had the, you know, the facilities eventually to, to house them. I ended up learning we were on this old Soviet helicopter base. We were in the foot of a valley. So um, you have to understand, when I say valley, this was a high valley. The, the, base, of the, the base floor of the valley was at 7,800 feet above sea level. And then the mountains all around us went up to about 16,000, 17,000 feet. Just, and we were in this big bowl, right? And uh, the, the mountains kind of extended 
on either side as you went down this bowl and they got higher as you went north and they got lower as you went south because you kind of went into the, 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 the desert plains of southern, southeastern Afghanistan and then eventually you hit, you know, the, the, the dead on south and all of the mountains in Afghanistan are either on the periphery of Pakistan up in the northeast or sort of in the middle and then everything else is kind of either grasslands or desert depending on where you are. Let's put a little context behind that for, for people listening. Going from D.C. to like 7,800 feet uh, is like, so when you would leave your, your hooch at like two in the morning to go take a pit, you would get winded. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, there was nothing that they could have done to us PT wise that would have prepared us for this other than I think running the hell out of us just up and down hills, which no offense, but Kansas was not the place to train for this mission. Sure. Environmentally speaking, we should have been at something like Fort Carson, Colorado, or, you know, uh, you know, up in the mountain warfare school in Vermont or something, right. or even the mountain phase of ranger school. I mean, like, and I, and I never went to any of those, those, those installations or training programs, but off the top of my head, just from the folks that I've talked to, those would have been environmentally the best places to, to have trained and conditioned us. I mean, that was the one thing is everyone arrived winded. Um, you needed about three weeks just to acclimatize. And even then you're still, you know, it's not like you're going out for an, a hike where, you know, the emphasis is, I don't know if you got any, like, backpackers, but it's all about lightweight, compact, you know, as efficient as you possibly can because every extra ounce, is that's just that more you got to carry. We're talking, we're at least at 70 pounds of gear just with ammunition, body armor, and, you know, weapon and helmet alone, right? That's not even without your pack or anything else. So, you know, it was, the Taliban had the distinct advantage of not having to wear any of that, half that crap, Right. They were all on motorbikes, which meant they could basically go anywhere and hit us and then pop smoke and leave. We're in these giant up-armored vehicles that barely can get you know, down the highway, let alone through the, the rural villages. I mean, at one point, our recommended course of action for anyone transiting our AO was to get out and dismount walk. We said, it's not worth it. You'll never spot the IEDs without doing it this way. It's going to take forever, but nobody will mess with you because you'll be a walking in force. And you'll have plenty of time to react to their ambush rather than them hitting you at speed and killing everybody in the vehicle. Um, but anyway, so we, uh, we got to this tiny little outpost. The next morning, this was my fourth day in country. This was April 17th now. We, uh, we got up and uh, they aligned up all the translators that were assigned to this little outpost, right? And there was about seven of them at that point, which might seem like a lot, considering only 20 people. But that's how critical translators were to our jobs because we literally embedded, like as soon as we got sort of up to speed of where, where our, get the lay of the land and what sort of our role was, the next thing was to go find our Afghan counterpart and connect ourselves to their hip and basically go where they went, right? And be there to advise and, and if necessary, take over if they, they couldn't muster up the, uh, the leadership necessary to take on their role. And so for you, what was this? Was this like a, an Afghan infantry platoon? That No, so I, uh, I started out with an Afghan police company. And uh, what ended up happening was within two weeks of us being on this base, I ended up getting reassigned because I was the only intelligence officer on the whole base. And it became very apparent, and I'll get to this in a second, but there was a series of events that made it very apparent to all of us that we had no support from our hire and that without us doing our own organic collective intelligence operation where we were actually outright talking to people, doing our own analysis, sharing with other coalition units located in the area, we were going to be shooting blind the whole year and we were going to get ourselves killed. And the best thing I could do at that point was to stop mentoring my little Afghan police you know, outfit and to take over doing all the intelligence for our little 20 guys, as well as mentoring the senior intelligence 
component of the Afghan army and police that were located in that area to get them to be doing better ops and, you know, better focused ops, intelligence driven ops. Um, Cause I think probably for some of your viewer listeners who are not, you know, as up to speed on the military, it might surprise you to learn that there are some leaders out there who don't let the intelligence that they receive determine what it is that they do. They just have, they've just decided that the best thing to do is to take the hill by charging directly up the hill because that's to them what makes the most sense. And they completely ignore what their, you know, their resources in the field, their, their scouts and others are telling them, saying, oh, if you go directly up the hill, you hit their minefields. And all of their, their fighters are, are basically dug in to defend a full frontal assault. But if you go to the right or the left, you can completely outflank them and take them with no casualties. There are some commanders who won't listen to that advice. They'll just say, nope, we're going up the hill because this is, how, this is the plan I came up with. And the hell or high water, we're following my plan. And they end up getting everybody killed. Um, our job was to try to help them not do those types of mistakes to, to drive in, at least from the, the, the intelligence culture that drives operations and get that into the regular decision-making process for Afghan army and police outfits to you basically make that as the regular part of their operational planning, that they would listen to the information coming in from the field and use that to determine what they did. Anyway, so it's my second morning, my second day ever on the, the, the FOB, literally my first morning. And they have all these translators lined up in front of us. And I just went down the line and said hi to each person. And at some point I must have gotten to Janice and said what I said to the previous guys, which is, hi, I'm Matt. I look forward to working with you. And he said, hi, I'm Janice. Same. I didn't talk to him for the next 10 days. 10 days later, he saves my life. We were out on a... Uh, a patrol to assess an Afghan police outpost in the middle of nowhere in this place called Wagaz. And uh, the day before, we had gone out to check out this place called Kogiani, and uh, Kogiani was in the middle of this valley. Kogiani? Kogiani. I've been there, man. Yeah? Been to Kogiani several times, yeah. Down by Wardak? Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went out to the Kogiani District Center to uh, check out the police there, and... Uh, and do an HA drop, humanitarian aid drop. Basically give out food to starving people and uh, shoes to barefoot children. There's only one road to get to Kogiani, which means the road that you drove in is the road you got to drive out of the valley. And uh, that makes it really easy for the Taliban to figure out when and where to hit you. And long and short, we drove right back into an ambush. And so we'd survived that ambush, but we learned early on that they stood up and fought. You know, when they engage, they engage close. I mean, I could see the dude with the PKM shooting at me. I could look right at his eyes. He was 30 meters away from me. And uh, they, they fought close and they fought aggressively and they weren't afraid to, to, to mix it, to mix it up. So we, um, the next day when we went out to Wagas, we decided, okay, well, we had the opportunity to go one road in and a different road out and decided to take advantage of that opportunity. And there, that was probably a critical mistake in hindsight, because first off, nobody on our convoy had ever driven out the southern route. We went in the northern route, and instead of coming back the northern route, we went out the southern route to try to do like a big circle. And uh, no one had ever driven the southern route. And the other thing was that the imagery and the maps that we had were from 1984. They're 24 years old. So we got real lost. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, on the way, coming back out, having assessed this police outpost. And so we decided to stop and ask this local for directions because we had actually been driving down 
a creek, what's called a wadi, except this one had water in it because it was just, there's a rainy season in Afghanistan. It's about two weeks long and it's in early to mid-April. And so there was still water in the, in the wadi. It hadn't dried out yet. And we were driving down this thing and these two guys on cherry red motorcycles were kept trying to get us to pull off and follow them. And we had been told by the local, so like in Afghanistan, they don't have like an FBI or a CIA. They just have like one organization that does what the FBI and the CIA do separately. It's called the NDS, the National Directorate of Security. And all these guys who worked for the NDS were previously trained by the KGB when the Russians were around. So like these are all the badass killers, right? And they're the ones who always had the best intel sources and really knew what was going on. And they told us that the Taliban in this part of the world were like a gang. And they all rode around in cherry red motorcycles. So there's two dudes on cherry red motorcycles trying to get us to like play basically tag with them, right? To follow them. We're not having any. But so we pulled off and we made a hard halt. And in, in the military, you have a um, like a civilian version Civilians have GPS. We have this thing called Blue Force Tracker. And it's, it's like, imagine Waze, but before everybody else had Waze, we had it, right? And so you can like click on the icon of like the vehicle in front of you and you can send them a text message and you can send a text message back to your base. And it sort of shows you in real time where you and everybody else is are all around you on a map. And so we could see on this map that where we were was about three to five kilometers away from where the main highway was that got us back to our base. The problem was there was a mountain in front of us and a couple of villages. We had no idea how to get the most efficient way there. So we decided to stop and ask a local. And there was this dude out farming his field. So the terp, the translator, interpreter, military slang is terp, term of endearment and extreme affection. The terp we had with us was a guy named Fareed. And uh, we decided to ask Fareed to stop, jump out and ask this local guy for directions. And so Fareed hops out and he talks to this farmer and he gets back in and he says, well, the guy says we should go up the road that's just to our right here and it's going to take us along this ridge line and then it's going to curve to the left and take us down into this village and we'll go through the village and then the road just goes straight right to the main highway and eventually we'll hit it. We can't miss it. We just get, once we get to the highway, we make a left and we knew it was about 30 kilometers back to where our base was. Simple enough. So we're in these three, we're in a three vehicle convoy. First two vehicles are what are known as MRAPs, mine resistant ambush protected vehicles. They're, they were designed by the South Africans during the Angolan war in the eighties. They're designed to take a roadside bomb, meaning there you can be riding in this, a roadside bomb can go off next to you or underneath you. And it doesn't, you don't die because the vehicle is designed with what's known as a V shaped hull. So the blast gets, dissipated away and the armor there is pretty thick um whereas in a humvee it's flat bottomed and the and the armor is thinnest on the bottom so if the explosion happens directly underneath the 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 design flaw is you're fucked. yeah you're fucked the design flaw is that the floor basically separates from the the walls and you get pancaked the floor actually comes up into the roof which doesn't separate um because it's often one piece of metal it's not bolted on it's been molded into a shape and everybody gets pancaked in, inside and they die so we had two of these vehicles. We had four in total. And uh, we, had, we had just had one destroyed the previous day in the previous day's firefight. And uh, we're driving along in this three-vehicle convoy. First two vehicles are these MRAPs. They're about 18 tons each. And then the last vehicle, the third vehicle in the order of March, was, a, was an up-armored Humvee. I was in the second vehicle. We were 150 meters behind the first vehicle. 
when all of a sudden we were having a conversation internally, when all of a sudden the largest explosion I've ever seen in my entire life happened right in front of my eyes, and I watched this 18-ton vehicle get picked up like it was a Coke can and just launched like a football field in front of us. And uh, it landed with just this loud thud. And I thought, okay, that's it. Every, all five people in that vehicle have to be dead. There's no way they survived that. And training kicked in. Um, captain Dean, who is the convoy commander and a special forces captain assigned to us, jumped out of our vehicle and ran right towards the wreckage. Uh, following his lead, I sent our medic, a guy named Sergeant Mason, or Doc Mason. I, I sent Doc after Captain Dean to assess the injuries. And I jumped on the tactical satellite radio and started to call in our position. At that moment, um, we got back word that all five people in that lead vehicle were alive, that they all had concussions to include the translator, and that uh, they didn't know really where they were, how to use their weapons, and that we probably needed to call in a medevac as well as close air support and a QRF, uh, and that what we were going to do was execute our standard operating procedure, which in this case, because we were in the middle of nowhere, we were now down to two vehicles and still had to Kazavac all five of the injured, and there was no way we could tow that thing away. We were going to take what's called a thermite grenade and blow it up. Thermite grenade is a grenade that once it goes off, it melts so high, it literally melts steel into itself, and it was a way of destroying all of the bolted-in sensitive items that we didn't have time to extract. Well, the battalion commander of the AO, who we were OpCon to, um, got on the radio when we reported this up, and I'll never forget this. He said, I don't leave behind monuments to our failure like the Russians. You are to remain in place until properly relieved. If you don't come back with that vehicle, don't bother coming back at all. It's what we call a die-in-place order. So um, at that point, we decided to put everybody in a dismounted security perimeter and take that Humvee and put it on top of the ridge line because we had a 50 cal with it and use that as an overwatch. Take my vehicle and move it as close to the blowing up vehicles we possibly could to guard its position, but far enough away in case there were any secondary devices that we didn't set it off. And so we went up basically to the point of the explosion, right? Because we didn't know anything beyond that, whether or not it would go off. And then from there, put everybody into this big circle surrounding the thing. And uh, we only had enough so that we had one guy per foxhole. And so for the next hour, we sat there waiting to get attacked while the Taliban probed us. They uh, at one point sent a guy on a cherry red motorcycle to drive right up our position to see what we did. At one point, they sent out a bunch of these two little girls to walk around the goats from the uh, mud brick compound right in front of us because that's the time when you send your kids out to walk, walk the family livestock is when the infidels are on the front lawn. Yeah, right. These kids who are, by the way, livestock there is like their most valuable possession. It'd be like if I sent your kid out with your pri family's private Ferrari, you know, along with like the life inheritance and the the family jewels that are all locked up in the safe at home and just said, here, kid, go nuts. They're sending these kids out with the livestock. They're not even paying any attention to the livestock. They're counting us. They're looking at us and making sure they know where all of our positions were. So we basically dug in knowing we were getting attacked. And what we were doing was every five to 10 minutes, one person would get up off of the line and they'd get in the back of my vehicle to get five minutes of air conditioning and grab a box of ammunition and as many bottles of water and get back to re-fortify their fighting position because we were trying to basically strengthen our line while minimizing the number of people who were off the line at any one time. And so an hour into this, it just happened to be my turn to get out off the line. 
And I got into the back of the vehicle where our medic, Doc Mason, was with Fareed playing patty cake. Because Fareed, this was the sixth IED blast Fareed had survived in his life. He had not been strapped into his seat. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And he wasn't wearing his helmet. So when Fareed suffered this, he suffered a pretty horrific knock to the head. And I had a horrible concussion. But we needed to keep him conscious, not just for his safety and his health, because also, quite frankly, we needed him to tell the villagers to stay away if we got attacked. Because he was the only person who spoke Pashto or Dari. And we didn't want to hurt anybody inadvertently. And so Scott was there keeping him conscious by playing patty cake. And I got on the back of the vehicle. Fareed looked at me and he says, I got to go take a piss. And I looked at Scott and I said, you're going to have to go with him. And I realized I was going to be back in the vehicle by myself. And I didn't really need all that much rest. So I grabbed my bullets, a couple bottles of water. And I said, Fareed, give me a cigarette. I don't want to be back here by myself. And so they had climbed, they had gotten out of the back of the vehicle and I was walking out the back door free to put a cigarette in my mouth and I just lit it. When I'll never forget, Scott raised up his M4 and was looking through his ACOG at a guy on a cherry red motorcycle on top of the ridgeline behind us. And he said, hey, isn't that that guy? Next thing I remember, I'm on the ground and it's the damnedest thing. The, uh, the dirt was, was jumping in front of me. It, it was like, I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. No one had ever briefed me on Asian jumping dirt, but there it was, clear as day, violating the fundamental laws of physics. Just dirt, just jumping up randomly for no reason, up in the air and then coming back down, up in the air, coming back down. And I couldn't make heads or tails of why the dirt in Asia would jump, but nowhere else in the world. When sound started to come back to me and I could hear what sounded like firecrackers going off around my head and it just, that didn't make any sense either. And then I heard yelling and I looked up and I saw these people shooting at us and I realized at that moment, that's not the dirt jumping in front of me, you idiot. You're getting shot at. Those are bullets hitting right in front of your face. And so training kicks in. You know, I, I pick up my weapon and I rotate my selector switch from safe to semi and I begin to engage my target. When Doc Mason ran and grabbed my muzzle and he, he pulls it up and he goes, sir, cease fire. And at that point, Lieutenant Fu, who is dazed having gotten hit from something, walks right in front of me. And then, then Scott, Doc Mason, grabs me and he goes, sir, the captain's hit. And I turned and I watched Captain Dean fall out of our vehicle and start hobbling over to this wall. And I ran up and I, I tackled him. And I started touching him from head to toe. Every time I touch him, I'd look for blood. Touch, look for blood. All the way down to his, from his head to his feet. And I got to the bottom of his feet, and I realized he hadn't been hit. He was just in shock. And so I, I turned him, and I, I showed him his hands. I go, look, sir, no blood. And he looks right up, and he goes, oh, okay, cool. What's happening? And uh, I hadn't realized it, but what had ended up happening was, was at that moment, we were under attack by 50 members of the Taliban versus the 15 of us. And they had initiated their ambush by firing a rocket-propelled grenade into the vehicle that I had just been sitting in. See, if I hadn't been lighting up a cigarette, the RPG warhead would have gone right through the, the, the wall of the vehicle, like a hot knife through butter, like it did, and then would have hit me right in my right kidney, just below my sappy plate, and split me in half, killing me instantly. So in a weird, perverted way, smoking saved my life. Um, this... This ambush would go on for the next hour, and uh, I get 
knocked out two or three more times by either mortar rounds or RPGs. I never figured out what it was that was getting close. But at one point, I um, I was out of grenades for my 203 grenade launcher, and I was uh, running low on bullets for my M4. When I realized I was separated from everybody else, I just explosions had knocked me one way and Captain D in the other way, and our comms were down. They weren't working on the ground. We weren't sure why. We think later we were being jammed. Um, but I was in this ditch, and uh, this mortar round had just landed pretty close to me, enough to send me flying into the ditch, and I figured I was dialed in, and the next one was going to be right on top of me. And I looked at my watch, and it was 4.50 in the afternoon. It was Monday, April the 28th, 2008. I was 26, and I just realized that I was going to die right there. I was going to die on the side of this ridge, defending a blown up paperweight of a vehicle for a lieutenant colonel who couldn't be bothered to get his quick, quote unquote, reaction force to us in a reasonable amount of time. And uh, that at some point in the next couple of hours, my mother and father were going to get the worst phone call of their lives. And I made my peace with that moment and just decided I was going to go out. I was terrified, but I was going to try and go out fighting as best I could. When all of a sudden someone yelled, Zeller, don't shoot to your six. There's friendlies to your rear. And I turned and like straight out of a movie script, there are these three up armored Humvees driving like bats out of hell coming from the village that's right in front of us. And the lead vehicle gets right up in front of me and the driver's side door flung open. And it's the sergeant first class from South Carolina named Mark Robertson who went, I, sir, I hear you're in a pickle. I brought a Mark 19 grenade launcher. Where you want it? And uh, for those of you who don't know what a Mark 19 grenade launcher is, it's a machine gun that fires grenades. It's what we call a battle-fucking-ending weapon. It's not fair to be the, on the receiving end of one of these things. It's awesome. And uh, I pointed to the ridgeline where we've been taking the majority of our fire from, and I said, everything up there is going to die. And he goes, roger that. And he turned to his gunner, and he goes, come on, Camacho, let's go hunting. And they, Camacho charged the, uh, the handle on the Mark 19 getting it ready to fire, and they drove off. And I will freely admit to, at this point, losing my military bearing. What I should have done was return back to my fighting position and face back out to my sec monitor my sector and feel the fire. But I had never seen a Mark 19 fired in anger, and these people have been trying to kill me all afternoon. I wanted to watch them die. So I stayed watching these guys assault this ridgeline, and what I didn't see were the two Taliban fighters sneaking up from behind me, ready to either shoot me in the back or grab me. Janice, that translator I met 10 days before in that receiving line to welcome me to the base and the mission, was part of that rescue convoy. He was in that first vehicle. And when I had been talking to the driver, he had hopped out to join the fight. And where I had been watching the vehicle assault the ridgeline, he had been looking around and saw the two dudes coming at me. And so he, he chose to act. He ran up. He shoulder checked me back into the ditch I had just been in, sent me flying back in, and then engaged him. And I remember just getting hit, landing on the deck, and hearing the unmistakable sound of an AK-47 going off right next to my head. And I thought, well, that's it. I must be dead now because we don't use AK-47s in our military. And I turned, and it was this Afghan man dressed in BDUs and ill-fitting Indian body armor that I later learned he bought at some bazaar. Probably wouldn't have stopped a bullet, you know, even if he had, you know, bought 10 of them and lined them all up next to each other, right? Standing over me, looking right down at me, 
And I looked up at him and I went, who the fuck are you? And he looked back down and he goes, I'm Janice. I'm one of your translators. You're not safe. Is the understatement of my life, right? As he pulls me up out of this hole. And then, then I look past him. And I saw the bodies of the two guys that he just shot and killed saving my life. And I, I will freely admit I went into a thousand yard stare for the next two hours. And uh, I couldn't make heads or tails of anything that I'd just been through. The next day at breakfast, I finally found him. We had a free moment together. And so I, I, he was eating by himself in our little tiny chow hall. And I, I sat down. I said, can I join you? He said, sure. And I said, um, hey, man, listen, I, I wasn't prepared for an Afghan man to save my life. I thought, you know, for sure, if we ever got into this, it'd be another American soldier, maybe, maybe even like a, a coalition partner like the Brits or the Poles or Canadians or something. But never. I didn't even know you existed, man. I mean, you've been on the other side of the world my entire life, and I didn't know who you were until 10 days ago, and this is the longest conversation you and I have ever had, and you've done for me the most important thing that anyone has done since my parents brought me into this world. Like, that's the gift. You gave me the gift of life again. I, I don't even know your name. He said, well, I'm Janice. And I said, it's a real pleasure to meet you, Janice. Why are you on our side? Because you're a hell of a shot. I'm really glad you're on our side, but... Why are you? And he said, you know nothing about Afghans. And I was like, you're right. I don't know anything about Afghans. Please teach me. And he said, okay. First rule of Afghans, Afghan men cannot fight without the blessings of their mother. I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me that everyone on the other side of yesterday's battle had mom's permission to be there? He goes, yep. And I go, what makes your mother so much more enlightened than their moms? And he goes, my mother can read or write. She's been able to read the Quran for herself. She knows what the Taliban preaches bullshit. And then he said the most important phrase that anyone said in my entire deployment. He said, why do you think it is that the Taliban burned down girls' schools? They don't want a generation of literate women who can grow up and read the Quran for themselves, who can interpret Islam for themselves, and they can say to their sons, no, you can't fight with those maniacs because they aren't real Muslims. They're the apostates. They're the villains. They're not good people. The minute that becomes the standard, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they can't survive, right? Because their ideology cannot stand up to the marketplace of ideas. And that's what they're so afraid of. That's the only way they can control the population, right? That's why the importance of one's news source and the validity and truth that one ascribes to that news source is so extremely important to controlling a population and what they do and how they think and perceive the world. Um, you know, in Afghanistan, the literacy rate doesn't exceed anywhere, you know, more than about 34% in, in some areas, which means everyone else is getting their news orally. And if uh, you can control that point of access to the world around them, you can really control how it is that they perceive and react and engage with the world. And so Janice's mother understood all that, and so does the Taliban, right? And she decided that her sons should be able to grow up and think and read, think critically think for themselves, and so insisted that they should be able to read and write. And Eventually, that led Janice to saving my life. And I was just flabbergasted. And so I said, look, ma'am, you're going to work for me now. And so I went and found my boss. And I said, sir, we got we to restructure the team. He goes, I agree. He goes, quite frankly, you're the only intel guy I got. And it's clear that we're alone and on our own. And I can't have that. Y your mission now 
in addition to training the Afghans that I'm going to ask you to train is to keep us alive. That's how I'm going to evaluate your OER. How many injuries did we go home with? Other than my daughter, the thing I'm proudest most of in my life is that I took a group of people to war and I didn't lose a single pinky. We did 400 plus combat missions. A lot of people got purple hearts and injured, but nothing where we all lost a limb. There's some scars, right? We got blown up a couple of times, but I didn't lose a single single person. Everyone came home to a family and there are a lot of babies who are now alive because of that. That, that to me is, is the only real valuable thing I did in the war other than keeping a promise. And that promise was made to Janice. So we spent the next nine months connected at the hip, going on every mission together, drinking tea together every night, sharing our culture with each other. He, he would cook every night. I, I, we eventually tired very quickly of the MREs that we had as sort of a meal choice. And Janice would go out to the local bazaar and pick up whatever he could find fresh. And he was, he's an amazing cook. And, um, you know, we'd sit and talk music. I don't know if you've ever played somebody the Beatles for the first time, but that's a pretty, pretty fucking cool thing to do just to watch somebody here Abbey Road for the first time and like experience this and never have heard anything like it before in their life and realize that there's this whole other world that has been completely closed. As much as he was thinking about that as me as an American, I was thinking about that as him as an Afghan. You know, we were living in Ghazni where there are these ruins from this, this dynasty called the Gorvid dynasty, which hasn't been around as an empire for over 700 years. And there are these t literally 1,200 year old ruins right there of this ancient civilization. And you realize Alexander the Great came through this area at one point on his way to trying to conquer India. Some of these people might be the descendants of his, 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 his army that he left behind. There's rumors that some of them are, well, it's never been proven, right? But it's sort of a local cultural rumor. And it's just, it's, it was fascinating to, to share that with each other and realize there was this whole other world that neither one of us had ever experienced that we could bring to one another and be better off as a result of it. Be more complete and developed people, whole. Um, so you can imagine when it was time to say goodbye to him, how hard that was going to be. But also you could then, I think, forgive me for thinking that I, I felt like I owed him a life debt and that I was intent on paying that life debt. And so I told him the last time I ever saw him in Afghanistan was up in Kabul when we were getting ready to get on our plane to go back to the United States. He came to say goodbye that last day. And I said, look, I wouldn't be alive today had it not been for you. So if I can never return that favor, it's called a life debt. I owe you forever. It doesn't matter where you are. You call me up. I'll do anything to include commandeering an aircraft to come pick you up, right? That's how much I owe you. And he said, you know what? One day you're going to come back to Afghanistan and you're going to come visit me in my hometown of Jalalabad and we're going to go hang out with my relatives in peace because there's not going to be war here anymore and the Taliban are going to be defeated and you'll have helped me do that because this is my country and I don't, I'm not afraid of those bastards. And thank you for helping stand with me. He said, the reason why I saved your life is because, not because I, I, I want a visa to come to the U.S., for you to get me to safety is because you were a guest in my country. You left your family to come to the other side of the planet to help possibly give my family a better life. He goes, the least I could do is send you home safely to you and yours. Well, thanks for your time, Matt. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Longest War with Matt Zeller from No One Left Behind. Join us next time we finish up this conversation for part two. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app.